A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine, and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that had stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. Stories. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew, as always, that's all you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, is, as the title suggests, I'm here to talk of the stories of films. And I tend to talk about production stories, development stories, behind-the-scenes stories, marketing release, any bits and bobs, really, that go towards making the films that we know and sometimes love just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. If you're new to this podcast, hello. If you're not new to this podcast, hello as well. Um, But I tend to to pick fairly mainstream films uh, I pick also movies that I have some interest or investment in I'm not really interested in punching down at anything I'm not massively interested in snark I just like waffling about films I find it an incredible achievement just to get a film to the screen that's what I try and celebrate with this podcast for better or worse although I do happen to like the two films I'm talking about in this episode and without further ado I just want to crack on and talk about them let's go back to 1995 for the first of them I'm going to play you a clip. We'll pick up the story the other side of this. What is all this about, huh? If we don't do what this guy says, he's going to blow up another public place. Why me? What has he got to do with me? I have no idea. He just said it had to be you. Simon says, get to the payphone in Wall Street Station by 10.20 or the number three train and its passengers vaporize. One school will be dismissed at 3 p.m. Permanently, unless John McClane and his new best friend complete the tasks I sent them. I'm not jumping through hoops for some psycho. That's a white man with white problems. You deal with it. This guy wants to pound on you till you crumble. He wants you to dance to his tune and then kill you. And that was a clip from 1995's action sequel, Die Hard with a Vengeance. The script for this one credited to Jonathan Hensley, the uh, directed by John McTiernan. The cast, Bruce Willis, Samuel L. Jackson, Jeremy Irons, Graham Greene in there, Colleen Camp uh, in the ensemble as well. And this was, of course, the third Die Hard movie. However, the path that this one took was influenced to a degree by problems with a couple of early 90s action endeavours, Hudson Hawk and The Last Boy Scout. So producer Joel Silver, who was what was co-producer of the first two Die Hard films, uh, Die Hard 1 in 1988, Die Hard 2, Die Harder in 1990. He worked with Bruce Willis on The Last Boy Scout. He worked with Bruce Willis on Hudson Hawk. But over those two projects, one of which was a notable flop in Hollywood's eyes, the other a commercial disappointment, even though it's a much more like film, Silver and Willis had some degree of falling out. In fact, Joel Silver, a notoriously boisterous producer and quite forceful in his views, also fell out with 20th Century Fox. He'd made Predator 2, a film I've covered in a previous podcast that keeps coming up. He'd made Predator 2 with Fox, amongst one or two other projects, and he wasn't particularly high on 20th Century Fox's Christmas card list as well. And this presented a problem in terms of getting a further diehard film going because producers Larry Gordon and Joel Silver were part and parcel of the package. Fox didn't particularly want to work with them. Bruce Willis didn't particularly want to work with them either. The chairman of 20th Century Fox at the time was a man called Joe Roth and he was keen to get another Die Hard film going. However, Die Hard 2, as again I've covered in a previous film stories, was an expensive endeavour for 20th Century Fox. The final production budget of that film came in somewhere in the region of $75 million, which was regarded as exorbitantly expensive and also the kind of film you just couldn't make a profit on. Now, 1991's Terminator 
2 which had a, a price just shy of a hundred million dollars that was a profitable film but it took an awful lot of money through the box office uh, appreciating studios don't take uh, only take a slice of the ticket price it took an awful lot of money through the box office to get that one into the green as a consequence when it came to another diehard film there was a feeling it needed to be slightly more economical that feeling was particularly enforced by the owner of 20th century fox one rupert murdoch there's a chipper chap for you murdoch was blanching at the idea of making another diehard film at that level of expense so he didn't particularly want to pay for it roth nonetheless wanted a film uh, wanted another sequel but it was going to have to go ahead somehow without joel silver and larry gordon involved um, so Joe Roth came up with a plan and this was very much against the grain for early 90s uh, Hollywood, particularly when you're making a sequel to one of your hit franchises in that he he mooted the idea of a very unusual co-producing deal on the film that at that point was known as Die Hard 3, that three companies would come together. One of them was Fox, one of them was the Disney-owned Hollywood Pictures, and the other was the independent producer Synergy, headed up by Andrew Vanya, who was uh, one of the co-founders of Carol Co. Between the three of them, they would put together the budget for the film. That way, Joe Roth got his, got his Die Hard sequel, Rupert Murdoch was happy because he didn't have to foot the full bill for synergy this was quite a coup as well for an independent production company to get its paws on a lucrative franchise so it also goes to the fact that if you've ever wondered why the dvd spine of die hard with avengers looks different in some in some areas of the world doesn't quite fit the box set as well it is because it was dis it was the only film distributed certainly in the uk by a different company to the others Synergy, you should note at this point, was building it. It made Medicine Man with Sean Connery. I don't particularly like that film, but the director of it was one John McTiernan. That's worth noting. And there was a way forward for the movie. However, that way forward, they had to get round the Silver and Gordon problem. And in the end, the pair of them were bought out of the project that they both received basically three quarters of a million dollars for doing absolutely nothing. It is nice work if you can get it. Then it was the case of, well, we've got to write it, need to come up with a script for this one. And so the idea, first of all, was a screenplay, an original screenplay by a writer called James Haggin by the name of Troubleshooter. Now, Troubleshooter was a, a story that was effectively die hard on a cruise ship. That was the idea of it. It would have seen Bruce Willis returning as John McClane on a Caribbean cruise ship fighting off terrorists. However, at the same time, it's worth remembering, this was the era of die hard honour. So we had die Die Hard on a Mountain with Cliffhanger. Die Hard on a Plane would be the likes of Executive Decision and Air Force One. The idea of Die Hard on a Cruise Ship, well, actually, as it turned out, there were two competing projects here. The one was Troubleshooter, which was being developed as uh, a Die Hard, that, that would be developed as a Die Hard sequel. But also, separately, there was a film bubbling up, directed by Andrew Davis, called Under Siege, starring Steven Seagal. Remember him? And and that film was it was basically a race to see which of the two projects would get to the screen first. Now, the Die Hard project was I mean, they were looking at crewing this one up at one stage. Richard Rush, who would uh, direct Bruce Willis in the let's just charitably say not great erotic thriller Color of Night. He was in the running to direct Die Hard 3 when it was going to be on the Caribbean cruise ship. Um, however, Under Siege 2 got to the screen first and in fact, the troubleshooter script would then be duly abandoned and it would turn up in a slightly different form i'm grateful to my former colleague ryan lambie for this would turn up in a, a different form as the basis of the film speed 2 cruise control it would be easy to say that the diehard franchise may have had a narrow escape there so that's what i'm going to say the diehard franchise may have had another a narrow escape there 
Now, in an article with the Los Angeles Times, um, an anonymous screenwriter familiar with both uh, Troubleshooter and Under Siege uh, was quoted as saying, there's a feeling they were just too similar. Willis especially didn't want to be seen following in Seagal's footsteps. I'd imagine it was the point that Under Siege was such a big success that really put the final nail in the metaphorical coffin for Troubleshooter. So at this point, Synergy uh, came in with a... Andrew Vanier of Synergy came in with a suggestion of hiring John Milius, legendary screenwriter John Milius, to take a look at the film. And he had been working with Synergy, and it was Milius and Barry Beckerman who then were recruited to pen a non-boat-based diehard sequel. And at that stage, the plan was to shoot the film in the middle of 1993 for a summer 1994 release. Even at that point, though, the bill for the movie was set to be up to around the $70 million mark. That was a little bit cheap than Die Hard 2, but not an enormous amount. Notably, though, Bruce Willis, um, his star power very much on the up at this point, in fact, pretty much at the peak of his powers, and he had approval of the Die Hard 3 script, and he wasn't keen to use it on the screenplay that uh, John Milius and Barry Beckerman put together. So it was on to someone else. In came Doug Richardson and John Fasano. They were hired to work on separate Die Hard 3 screenplays. They worked independently of each other. Uh, Richardson's would be Die Hard on a train, wouldn't you know it? It would involve the New York subway system, and ultimately there would be an action film involving the New York subway system that would be Money Train that would follow a couple of years later and a subway element would make it into Die Hard with a Vengeance as it would ultimately be known but Bruce Willis wasn't keen on the script by Doug Richardson Bruce Willis wasn't keen on the script by John Pisano and both of them were knocked back so Die Hard then did what it really had always done. It took a different a different screenplay that had been designed for a different purpose and repurposed it for its own means. And in, this is where writer Jonathan Hensley comes into the story because he penned a spec script by the name of Simon Says. That's a fine name. Now, a spec script, as we've discussed before, is one that you write that hasn't been commissioned and the hope is that when you, when you finished it, you send it out to market and people will pay even more. Uh, they pay premium on it for not commissioning it in the first place and that's what happened with Simon Says and Warner Brothers for one was interested in it but it was 20th Century Fox that picked this screenplay up now, it picked the screenplay up for an entirely different project that it, what it wanted to do was repurpose Simon Says, not as Die Hard 3 initially, but as Rapid Fire 2. Now, Rapid Fire had been a hit movie starring the late Brandon Lee. And the idea was Rapid Fire 2 would, would reunite Brandon Lee with Angela Bassett. But of course, fate took a turn here. And during production of the film The Crow, Brandon Lee was killed tragically in an onset incident involving um, a fake firearm. And as a consequence, Rapid Fire 2 wasn't going to happen, clearly. Um, Thus, the, the, the script of Simon Says came back onto the market. Now, Warner Brothers at one stage expressed interest in picking up the screenplay for itself. It had the idea of potentially turning Simon Says into its latest Lethal Weapon sequel. But Fox wasn't selling this one. Fox wanted the script for itself. And it was when it came time to hire a director for Die Hard with a Vengeance that Simon Says uh, became, uh, became a Die Hard property. So John McTiernan had directed the first Die Hard film and he had rejected an offer to direct Die Hard 2 Die Harder, which would go on to be helmed by Rennie Harlan. McTiernan instead opted to make The Hunt for Red October, so you'd hardly say he made a bad choice there. But he and Bruce Willis had reportedly remained in conversation about him coming back to do another Die Hard movie. Thus, the, 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 the offer went out to McTiernan to come back to do Die Hard 3, and this time he was interested. Now, he was in demand um, that at the, at the time he was also one of the names on the list to do Batman 3 following Tim Burton's departure from that franchise after Batman Returns. The movie that would go on to become Batman Forever would, of course, be directed by Joel Schumacher. Danny Cannon was reportedly one of those who was sounded out as well. He had sprung onto the scene with the British film The Young Americans and he was being lured for a Hollywood project. But Cannon was a a lifelong fan of 2000 AD comics. So when the offer came in for him to do 1995's Judge Dredd, he opted to do that. How close he got to the diehard job isn't clear. What was clear 
was that John McTiernan agreed to direct again. He was back. He knew his way around these characters. He knew his way around action cinema. And yet when McTiernan came, he raised the idea of using Simon Says as the basis of the film. Now, at this stage, Angela Bassett was still uh, connected to that uh, in the role that would go on to become Zeus in the final movie. But the decision was made to uh, turn that role from female to male. Bassett found herself off the picture. As a consequence, the script was reworked, but not an, a, as much as you may think. Uh, Jonathan Hensley, in the uh, comment, one of the commentary tracks on the DVD, he talks about how basically the first half of the movie that we see was the first half of Simon Says, just with the character names changed to accommodate the Die Hard franchise. In the second half, there were notable alterations, but that first half of the film was pretty much what he'd envisaged. When it came to casting, Bruce Willis was obviously going to return in the role of John McClane. There's an argument that suggests this is the last time he really played John McClane, that the subsequent Die Hard film and Die Hard fan film, uh, that's what I'll call a good day to Die Hard, just saw him playing Bruce Willis action star. This was the last one really where there was strong evidence of John McClane as a character. For the role of Zeus then, who, I mean, this was going to be a buddy film for the first time effectively, an offer went out to Lawrence Fishburne. Now, Lawrence Fishburne was considering the role. He'd already passed on Samuel L. Jackson's role in Pulp Fiction, for instance, because that was a supporting part and his representatives were after him having a lead role. And here was a big lead role in a Hollywood movie. But the story on this one goes, the reason Fishburne didn't end up in Die Hard with a Vengeance is he simply sat on the decision for too long. Because whilst they were putting this film together, the Cannes Film Festival happened and Pulp Fiction premiered. Now, Pulp Fiction was a, a, a notable film in what was perceived as Bruce Willis's career rehabilitation after a string of disappointing projects. Bonfire of the Vanities hadn't done well. Hudson Hawk hadn't done well. Striking Distance hadn't done well. And... Then Pulp Fiction came out at Cannes, was a sensation, and not only did it uh, d did it do Bruce Willis's career a fair amount of good, it electrified Samuel L. Jackson's. And so, when the producers saw the film at Cannes, and at Bruce Willis's suggestion, um, Samuel L. Jackson was then offered the role of Zeus in the third Die Hard movie. Fishburne would eventually come back and, and reportedly accept the role, but by that point it was too late. Jackson had signed on the dotted line. Jackson would admit he was a huge fan of the first Die Hard and was thrilled to be on board for the sequel. Now, one of the things that the third Die Hard film does is it cuts ties with quite a lot of the characters of the first two movies. Um, notably the character of Holly, uh, John McClane's wife. I mean, we see her in a telephone call. That's it. We don't actually see her. We just see that McLean is on the phone to her and she's talked about a reasonable amount. Um, there was a report that she'd been offered the chance to return in the role, but that she declined and she would give an interview. I think it was about 2007. She gave an interview where she noted how the women in the Die Hard films stayed young, that the character of McLean's daughter was in there uh, to, to put a young, a younger woman in the movie. But the uh, the uh, her character basically wasn't really allowed to age in that franchise. Um, of course, Bruce Willis, as John McClane, he was allowed to age, but a, a female lead wasn't. And that was the point that she was putting across. So Bonnie Bedelia wasn't in the film. Reginald Vell Johnson, who played Al, of course, in the first two movies. Well, his role had been relegated in the second film. In the third, you find him in the DVD extras and that is your lot. He is introducing a behind the scenes look at the making of the film. And his non-involvement is basically dismissed with a line where he says oh he's this film's set in new york and he's an la cop so he wasn't going to be in it um which i thought was quite charitable on his part really but no reginald vell johnson um no uh, no thornberg in this one and and the cast of characters really apart from mclean quite different that said there was a link of course with the villain that the villain of die hard with a vengeance is simon gruber who is the brother of hans gruber and as was want by Hollywood at this point they were on the lookout for a British actor to play the, to play the role notwithstanding the fact that Simon Gruber is a European villain um, they, they looked to Britain to the British Isles to see who could play him Sean Connery brilliantly was apparently on the list and was asked about it uh, to the point where it seems like he got to read the script of the film and was put off by just the nastiness of the character really However, 
One person whose career was very much in the ascendancy was uh, David Thewlis. He had appeared in, uh, and he's staggering in the film, in Mike Lee's movie Naked. And that had very much put him on, on, on the map of Hollywood casting agents to the point where he had a choice between two big Hollywood projects. Which do you want to do? Do you want to play the villain in a diehard film or do you want to appear in the film Dragonheart? Ironically, uh, a film in which Sean Connery was involved voicing a dragon. And Thewlis opted for Dragonheart. As such, they went down the list and there was Jeremy Irons. Now, Jeremy Irons had won an Oscar for Reversal of Fortune at the start of the 90s and was seen as a very uh, respected classical actor. He, of course, voiced uh, Scar in The Lion King. So there was a turn towards the villains here. But he liked the idea of shaking things up a little bit. And Julie agreed to sign up to be the villain in Die Hard with a Vengeance, as the film was now known. Filming would get underway then at the end of July 1994 with an eye now on a summer 1995 release. The shoot would go through until the end of December 1994 and notably this one really played with the location of New York a lot. That This was the uh, the first New York set diehard movie and they wanted, as the old cliche goes, the, char- the, the city of New York to be a major character in the movie. As such, that is where the uh, production was cited. McTiernan, um, as as promised, he knew his way around making a diehard film and he also was savvy with action cinema that he was having to, because a lot of the action stuff was location driven as well, he would have to basically be putting the film together in its in his head. It's a sorted constituent parts that there are some big action sequences that had to be done in multiple bits that the, the person who was gluing them together, at least on set, was McTiernan, that he knew what what, what slot and tab needed to all be put together and there was a feeling of confidence with him at the helm of the movie there were some little stories in and around the shoot i mean notably there is a a a moment in the uh in the film where the character of john mcclain goes into the harlem area wearing a sign with a particularly racist message on it now this was uh, had had bruce willis done this for real there would have been trouble but he didn't do it for real. He did certainly go down to Harlem. He did wear a sandwich board with a message on it. But the offensive message was actually added by computer effects afterwards. This was quite, I mean, this was some of the relative infancy, really. It was changing the text of something that was being worn in post-production. But there was no other way really round it. And in fact, the inclusion of that scene was one of the conditions of Jonathan Hensley um, going with 20th Century Fox for the Simon Says script in the first place. That at the point where fox was saying we can't have that scene in the film he threatened to take the whole project elsewhere and that's one of the reasons that it stayed in the dvd release of the movie back when they did such things goes into quite some detail about how some of the action sequences were done and so uh, researching this podcast i was reading around that the sequence on the new york subway where a train uh, an explosion goes off and the train slides across the platform um that there was assorted bits of trivia that suggests that people really were having to run because the train in that sequence was going really fast. When you watch it on the DVD, the actual making of that particular sequence, turns out they weren't lying. That they had this set, they they triggered the explosion and this train this train car comes along the platform at real speed and you do see the extras pegging it out there um, and then stopping and giving themselves a big round of applause once they'd managed to escape completely intact. So that that was a good thing. One of the key things about Die Hard with a Vengeance's story, though, was the battle over the ending in that this was one of those films where production began without a great deal of certainty as to ultimately where the story was would end. I don't think it's going massively spoilery to suggest that uh, that, that John McClane would have to prevail over Simon Gruber. But actually, there were two or three endings in the mix of this one. It wasn't particularly clear which way the movie was going to go to the point where two endings were shot and a third was mooted as well. The one that was mooted that wasn't shot would have taken us back to there's a sequence in the park where there's a bomb that's diffused when a suitcase bomb that's 
it's diffused. When McLean and Zeus solve a particular puzzle, that bomb would have come, would have made a return at the very end of the film in the unfilmed ending of the movie as all the baddies go off in a plane and there's the briefcase bomb. They've ended up with it for some reason or other and kaboom and they're thus defeated. The ending that um, the, the ending that we ultimately got is probably the safest of them. With McLean just looking around for something traditional to shoot, really, so that he can bring down Simon Gruber, etc., etc. The one that they filmed and didn't use is a flat-out corker, and it would have really changed the tone of the end of the movie. Now you can find this online. I will put it on our website as well. Um, and they included it on the disc that the original one of the original endings that they shot for this movie would have seen Simon Gruber and his team get away with their big with their big robbery. I'm trying to go spoiler light as possible. There's not much way I can avoid it here. As such, McLean would be fired from the police force because the police for some reason thought he would have he was involved in some degree or there was some incompetent and to be fair at the start of the film he's on the verge of being fired anyway and so mclean then we find would track simon gruber down to a, a, a posh restaurant in hungary where the pair would end up playing a game of russian roulette <laughs> effectively but with a rocket launcher that McLean turns the tables on Simon Gruber and starts playing Simon Says with him, does a lie detector test. And it, it, basically it, it ends with Simon Gruber pressing the uh, pressing the uh, trigger button on a rocket launcher. And in a very confined space, the rocket launcher goes off slap bang into him it is a really dark ending to a diehard film and that was ultimately one of the reasons why it wasn't used that it was felt that it was just cruel and nasty and that wasn't necessarily the character of john mcclain it was shot though and it came close and you can see this sequence the movie was ultimately completed anyway. The bill would come in at around $90 million in the end. So as it turns out, far more expensive than Die Hard 2. And it would be released in the US, first of all, on May the 19th, 1995. The critical response to it was slightly more favourable than that of Die Hard 2. There's a feeling that Die Hard 2 had gone really quite nasty. That is the film, of course, where they just blow up 200 people just to prove a point. Um, I, there's an ongoing, I, I mean, apparently the internet's quite good at ranking articles and there tends to be some disagreement about whether two or three is the second best of the diehard films that notwithstanding the critical response was quite good for this one and the box office returns were quite good as well that in the us it opened in first place at the box office with a 22 million dollar opening weekend it knocked crimson tide off the top of the charts which i've covered before also in the mix uh, the, the other big new release that week was forget paris which is an overlooked really billy crystal romantic comedy that i recommend also uh meandering around the chart at that point with the likes of while you were sleeping rob roy now there's a film i should come to that at some point friday was in there as well and bad boys had just dropped out of the top 10 too the movie though would go on to gross 100 million dollars in the us um, which is slightly below what they're expecting but then it would be remiss to say diehard films have ever set the us box office alight that I, I think the most successful at the us box office is the fourth one but even then we're talking in the low to mid hundred thousand uh, uh, hundred millions uh, which is a lot of money when you think about it but not in terms of the scale of other big juggernaut blockbusters around the time what really set this one alight though was the international box office that this was one of those instances where and it was rare at the time where over 70 percent of the movie's money came from outside of the us and in fact the worldwide take of die hard with a vengeance of 366 million dollars was a very handsome return for the film it would still take a long time for a fourth installment to follow. I've covered it in the past. Die Hard 4 or Live Free or Die Hard, depending where you live, uh, wouldn't come out until 2006. And then we get the, well, I, I still call it a Die Hard fan film. I, I don't like A Good Day to Die Hard at all. That would follow six years, uh, six or seven years after that. Um, one one byproduct of the Disney merger with Fox that has taken over, I call it merger in inverted commas, is that now for the first time, all 
all of the diehard films are fully under the ownership of one company that Fox had picked up, uh, had eventually bought the rights back to Die Hard 3, but now that they are fully a Disney operation. But the takeover of Fox by Disney also appears to have put to an end the plans for one further Die Hard adventure, which was going by the name of Die Hard Year One, which would have taken us to, yeah, the origin story of the character of John McClane. I don't think that many people really want to see that, but as it turned out, quite a lot of people wanted to see Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson barreling around New York City and causing mayhem. And that's why Die Hard 3 remains arguably the last of the the much-liked Die Hard movies. Which brings me to the midway point of the latest podcast. Uh, ooh, lots of things to tell you about, so I, I best go quick. Uh, first of all, a favour. If you uh, if you like this podcast, uh, it would do. Uh, it helps us enormously if you subscribe to it at your podcast home of choice. Likewise, if you can leave us ideally a hugely positive review. I'm a fully independent person without a company. I sit here in my front room yabbering into a microphone and that all I have is your, your word of mouth to keep me going. I can't thank you enough for it. I also publish magazines under the Film Stories names and these have opportunity very much at their heart, not more so than Film Stories Junior, the latest issue of which I've just sent to print. Film Stories Junior is the world's only print film magazine for under 15s and what's more, it's primarily written by under 15s as well. It's a really hard job selling independent magazines. I'm so proud of of, of them. And in Film Stories Junior, 16, 17 youngsters are getting paid writing work. If you can help spread the word of that, that helps me enormously. Enormously, uh, either look at store.filmstories.co.uk or www.filmstories.co.uk and you can find all the details there. Now I'm going to crack on with the second of the two films I'm going to talk about. Oh, heck, do I love this film. We're going to 2016. Let me play you a clip which has got a slight sweary word in, but hopefully you won't mind. Ash and I have been hanging out for about six months now. She's the total package. Are those real wolves? Yeah. Is that a seal? And you invited the press. What's going on? Will you marry me? Yes. The wolves are loose! Are you okay? I've been in this situation before. I think I got these scars. From wolves? Now let's get out of here. We killed Seal! He's dead! He's dead! Seal is dead! What I like to do on this podcast sometimes is highlight uh, a a, a particular comedy film that I don't think that many of you may have caught up with. If you have not caught up with 2016's pop star Never Stop Never Stopping, it is 82, 83 minutes of your life that I don't think you'll regret. It's directed by Jorma Tacconi and Akiva Schaefer, written by Andy Samberg, Akiva Schaefer and Jorma Tacconi. The three of them also star in the film, although Samberg takes on the lead role of Connor for real. Also in the ensemble, what an ensemble, so many cameos as well in here. Uh, Sarah Silverman's in there, Tim Meadows, Maya Rudolph, Joan Cusack, Imogen Poots, great in this film. Um, James Buckley from The Inbetweeners, he turns up in there. you, uh, cameos and likes of 50 Cent, Ringo Starr, Mariah Carey, Simon Cowell. I mean, I, I could fill a podcast just reading the cast list of this one. The origins of the film are in the comedy troupe known as The Lonely Island. And I don't think they're particularly well known in the UK, although the film Hot Rod has certainly earned them a fair few fans. But it's worth going back to the origins of them because The Lonely Island are Akiva Schaefer, Andy Samberg and Jorma Tacconi. And they met up in uh, the early 2000s. They met at school and they decided to form this comedy group. And they moved to Los Angeles and started making short comedy films. Now, they were pretty much ahead of their time here because what they were using the nascent World Wide Web for was to put their short comedy films on the web and their reputation soon sort of people took notice of what they were doing including some very high profile people and thus by the year 2005 they'd been hired by Saturday Night Live now Saturday Night Live then uh, got them creating the hugely popular Saturday Night Live digital shorts and those in turn brought them a new audience brought them another truckload of fans another load of high profile fans as well 
Now, the Lonely Island make music as well. They have a couple of albums to their name. Um, But they had their first taste of the movies with the aforementioned Hot Rod. And Hot Rod came around in 2007. I only caught up with Hot Rod last year. Um, So so I'm recording this in the middle of 2020. And so I'm well behind the curve on that film. Ladies and gentlemen, dig out Hot Rod. Um, However, the problem with it was it was made for around $25 million. They were given that budget. They were seen as the hot new comedy talent. Um, it struggled and it made shy of what about 14 million dollars worldwide but hot rod picked up a reputation on its dvd release and would go on to be a, a cult hit on home format and would make universal its money back the trio meanwhile would also get involved in other movie projects separately to uh, one another so for instance we got uh, Akiva Schaefer he would go on to make uh, a high profile 2012 comedy The Watch which didn't do particularly well I don't think it's a particularly great film I'm afraid 2010's MacGruber meanwhile well Jorma Taccone took that one on and that one even though it wasn't a massive financial success has an enormous number of fans and there's still continuing talk about a possible MacGruber 2 and then Andy Samberg well he was getting high profile roles in front of the camera he turned up in things like What's Your Number and Friends with Benefits TV shows like Parts and Recreation um, and the film I Love You Man and then Adam Sandler hired him to be his co-star in 2012's That's My Boy However, there was, too, the idea of the trio doing another film together as part of The Lonely Island. And they'd recorded more music. And there was the talk of doing a sort of fictionalised version of their music career in a mockumentary. Now, mockumentaries are a very, very difficult genre to get right. Uh, you go to This Is Spinal Tap at the absolute top of it. Um, Christopher Guest, obviously, has has done some wonderful work in mockumentary. I mean, Waiting for Guffman is astonishing. But there aren't that many of them about because they're very hard to make and the trio um had a, a long interview with collider where they discussed how it came about that, that they were going to do another film together and the catalyst in the end was a legendary comedy producer judd apatow now apatow had been directing his films at this point had been producing um films like super bad knocked up things like that he was involved with him. and it was he who uh, suggested that they did the film about a fake pop star instead not as themselves that they could weave in elements of themselves and then the kind of the idea then developed that this film could be a mockumentary about a boy band so it could be about all of them and that's how the band the star boys that we see in pop star i'm going to spoil a light as i can because i'm very aware lots of you haven't seen this film um that's how the band the star boys came together and their, their decision was made that andy sandberg would take on the lead role of connor for real they developed and worked and worked and worked at this idea and they kept showing Apatow the script and the idea was that Apatow would sort of keep them roughly on the straight and narrow really while they went off and explored all the various strands that they could possibly work with. The feedback they kept getting was put a bit more of your own story in, a bit more of your own story in, a bit more of your own story in. They worked really, really hard to get the script right before filming was underway. And um, As they say, they said that Apatow kept giving them these gentle nudges and also they were watching the, uh, the the spate of music star documentaries that had had sprung up as well that were Justin Bieber never say never uh, Katy Perry there was a feature film uh, documentary about her as well and they watched lots and lots of these films they recognized that most of them were about individuals rather than groups and so they bore that in mind when they were putting their script together and once they worked out the core plot of what they wanted to do with pop star the plot actually didn't alter that much they sort of nailed what they wanted to do with it the jokes would alter an awful lot now once they got the script into some kind of place the idea was they wanted to do a new lonely island record at the same time as well and so at the point where they had the guts of the screenplay in a position that they were relatively happy with they started to work in the music into the film as well as and when uh, they uh, cast more and more people in the movie as well and they they were chasing cameos they were chasing stars to come in and play themselves and then they land someone like Maya Rudolph and so they would write bits 
of the film around the people who were coming on board the project and th th this film was going forward this film was going to happen now there was a, a little bit of speculation that what they were trying to do was a spoof of the justin bieber story but th th instead th they always rejected that they've always pushed back against that and they said what they actually wanted to do was have a conversation with the film about the current state of the music industry rather than Bieber specifically. Now, that's not to say that they didn't draw on things that were happening in the in the uh, from real musicians in the real world. There was a notable point. I think it was two. It was the start of the decade, I think, when U2 released an album and basically anyone with an iTunes account got a copy of this album, whether they wanted it or not. And they kind of tapped into that a little bit. Um, and thus they decided that they're character Connor for real he would upload people's album to people's appliances whether they wanted it or not sparking a public outcry and that's what we get in the movie the film then got its green light with Universal Pictures backing the project and giving the movie a 20 million dollar production budget the uh, I mean th this was a, a top secret project as well it's worth noting that that the start of production of it was actually announced out of the blue by Universal Pictures in a press release it put out on May the 14th 2015 and tellingly the name of the film at that point was top secret untitled Lonely Island movie now there was some excitement with that especially well amongst the lonely island fan base because this was the first film since hot rod that they'd done together that hot rod had been this this cult uh, this growing cult hit and there was interest in what they were going to do next there was another working title of the film which was connor for real but production would begin on uh, in the middle of may of that year the shoot then was a busy one because even though it had a 20 million dollar budget that might sound like a reasonable amount of money to shoot a comedy they were trying to do something really quite ambitious um not least in the star boys and connor for real playing concerts to huge huge crowds and their saviors when it came to those sequences was a boy band as it happened one direction that it turns out that one direction amongst one direction are fans of lonely island and so when they came to do the arena shots in the movie one direction gave the lonely island team permission to use footage of their then in development movie uh, one direction this is us the constant film that was done by morgan spurlock and they were able to to basically use uh, use footage from that film uh, they were able to go into the avid editing system pick out the footage they needed so that they can get across the scale of a huge arena and so whenever you're seeing huge waves of crowds in the pop star movie what you're actually seeing is one direction fans at a one direction concert now they did film this in la and they filmed bits of it at the forum in la so they did use a uh, proper music venue um and they did bring in extras they so not everything is uh, a, a quite the visual cheat it appears they they had to film bits of the uh crowd in various chunks as well and then duplicate i think that's a pretty well-worn uh, hollywood technique to do so but also they did shoot performances in uh, at a real venue with real reactions from people too in fact, they shot a music video for the film as well on the Universal lot in two days flat. And in doing so, if you watch the film, you can see it. They decided to weave in the clock tower from Back to the Future. If you've ever had the pleasure of the Universal Studio tour, you get to drive past said clock tower and they got it into the background of their music video. They spent about a week shooting the musical stuff. They were moving extras around the arena. They, they got as many full of um, crowd shots as they possibly could. Um, there were lots of there were locations that they used and they had flexibility on locations they didn't have an awful lot of time with so when they were doing uh, the stuff on the farm again I'm trying to keep it quite loose that was very early in the schedule they were able to beat uh, a quick a storm that would quickly follow and get their footage in the can there but by nature the fact they were making a mockumentary this uh, lent itself to a lot of improvisation it also lent itself to shooting the film in a documentary style as well they could throw 
around ideas. They'd have multiple cameras going. They could go off into changing rooms, into the car park. They could go off wherever they wanted and keep shooting. And the cameras would just keep rolling. They would try things in lots and lots of different ways. Um, they would try and film anywhere that they could that they felt the characters would go. And in fact, John Tacconi would say uh, in an interview uh, that we had an alt script of just things we wanted to fit in that was just like 300 pages that we just had with us. So this isn't the, the screenplay with the words on it. This is a wish list of things that they wanted to capture as part and parcel of the script. Now, uh, of the shoot. Now, I, I mean, you look at a film like 1917, that had an alt script. There's one screenplay for the dialogue and another screenplay for the technicals of where the lights had to be and the cameras had to be. In the case of Popstar, its alt script was hundreds of pages of basically gags and side things that they wanted to get in. They needed to be ready to get those moments as as and when they could um, and just run off and do it on the side if they could as well. They didn't have an enormous amount of shooting day, so they just had to be flexible. They got their footage together then and because they were shooting it like a documentary, they got an awful lot of footage. In fact, the estimate was around 400 hours of footage was in the can at, at the point they got to the edit suite and started sorting through it. To put that into some degree of context, that's about three times as much as you get on a standard feature film. And this was a movie on a modest comedy budget with exactly the same post-production budget and time Time frame you would get from a modest comedy. They had a job and a half on their hands. To give you an idea of the challenges they were up against, I mean, they, every vox pop that you see in the film, they just shot interviews, sometimes on multiple cameras, for a period of time. Some of the interviews that are reduced to seconds in the movie, they shot for about 45 minutes just to get that material. And they basically would say, they told Collider, they ended up with the footage as if they'd shot a year-long documentary. And that meant sorting through it was going to be a nightmare. The nightmare in part was handled by the uh, assortment of production assistants working on the film who went through and transcribed every interview because otherwise when they wanted to pull a moment into uh, it, 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 when they're in the edit suite and they wanted to pull a moment into the film, it meant they didn't have to sort through the footage. They could sort through uh, a word processing document, find the, find the bit of interview that they needed and then they'd be able to go straight to the footage they needed without having to wind through and sort that way because of the enormous amount of footage that they had it also meant the film in post-production could have gone many many different ways and as Tacconi told Collider it was a harder movie in the edit because it was just more malleable than other movies and let's remember by this stage the Lonely Island team were were, were experienced filmmakers this wasn't their first movie they'd worked across an assortment of productions both in front of and behind the cameras so they knew what they were doing but they were also aware that they could just add a little moment in and it would change the tone of a scene and that change of the tone of the scene would knock on the next 10, 15, 20 minutes of the film. And so they played around an awful lot and the writing of the film, they would be fairly open of, would continue right the way through the editing process because the direction of the film was altering. Um, the tone of the film was altering and the story it was telling, even though it was effectively the rise and fall of a pop star, there were various different ways that you you could you could spin it there are lots of characters and songs that they shot that they didn't end up using in the film and they describe it as, as some really tough decisions they had to make but also one of the tonal things that they pulled back on was the downfall side of the story of connor for real's downfall in the hands of andy sandberg and you get a real taste for this on the disc release of pop star in that it goes into quite a lot of detail as to just how hard and how fast the character falls um, but it was taking the film into too dark a place as it turns out i mean just the deleted scenes they let us see on the disc would run for a further 75 minutes i think the final cut of the film is 86 87 minutes and um, i mean it brings to mind to me anchorman the first anchorman film where they released a second film of footage that there was that much improvisation and footage on on the first anchorman that they were able to edit together a second film that they released as a dvd extra in the case of Popstar, i mean they may as well have done that there was another hour and a quarter of footage and that was the stuff they let us see there was a lot more that they didn't Tacconi would 
further tell uh, Collider that the editing team on the film were fairly candid about just what a job this was and they that they said to them this is the most versions of a first act I've ever done on any movie there's reportedly over a hundred different ways that they they tried editing the first act of the film alone uh, the Lonely Island team brought in other brains as well to uh, give them different inputs so people like Phil Lord and Chris Miller of the Jump Street and the Lego movies that uh, they came in and came up with suggestions but it turns out those suggestions were amongst some of the hundred or so things that they'd ever tried but eventually they got the they got a cut together that they were happy with and if you listen to the commentary on the disc it, it i mean it's quite jokey for long periods of it but then occasionally they say well we really nearly did pull this bit out and put that bit out and move that bit out and it's very clear that this was quite a fluid film until quite late in the day in terms of bringing it to public consciousness, <laughs> Sandberg would announce the title and the first poster for the film on an episode of Jimmy Kimmel Live in the US. And so that was announced at the end of February. And uh, that's February 2016. Now, Universal had earmarked a release date of May the 24th, uh, 2016 in New York with a broader US release on June the 3rd of that year. But they got the feeling um, that, that there was going to be a problem. So Sandberg did the promotional rounds. He went on, you know, things like The Voice, Saturday Night Live and things like that. Um, they uh, showed clips. They showed songs. They tried pushing. Um, and they, they, they used the Lonely Island YouTube channel as well and just really tried to get the word out about the movie. But the team admitted about a week before release they knew they were in trouble that they didn't feel there was a lot of promotion for the film that also the movie was coming out in the midst of the summer and summer if you don't get your promotion right on a on a comedy film it's a very quick way for it to disappear pretty much without trace and sadly in the case of pop star never stop never stopping that is pretty much what instantly happened that the movie came out in the uh, the wide release in the US was on June the 3rd 2016 and if you look at the films coming out that day um, it was up against Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows uh, it was up against Me Before You X-Men Apocalypse was still uh, had been released the week before as, as had Alice Through the Looking Glass and even though none of these films did huge 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 amounts of business they did comfortably more business than Popstar by the time the weekend grosses were in, pop stars had never stopped, never stopping. The opening weekend was 4.6, 4.7 million dollars. It opened in eighth place in the US and it didn't stick around the chart for an awful lot longer. As a consequence, its total gross uh, in America would come in at a criminal $9.6 million. It would only add $40,000 outside of the US. And that's because it only got a, a cinema release outside of America in the UK, from what I can work out. Even then, it was dumped in the schedules at the end of August uh, with precious little promotion. It didn't seem to be on that many screens. And here was a film that was seemingly just going to be lost. Thank the Lord then for home formats, for word of mouth and for people continuing to bang the drum for a brilliantly offensive foul mouth slice of flat out comedy gold that whilst there's not been much sign of another Lonely Island uh, cinema film since um, their latest going to HBO Max in the US the fact that they gave us Popstar that they wrestled this huge hugely ambitious project into the, the comedy shape that it ended up with I mean I, I, I again I come back to the point I think lots of you haven't seen it hopefully off the back of this lots of you will seek it out you are in for a treat and that brings me to the end of this latest episode of film stories it also uh, means i'm heading into my summer break that this is going to be the last episode for a couple of weeks i'm just downing tools and just rebooting a little bit um you can find me on twitter in the interim at simon brew you can find the entire film stories project at film stories pod the website is at www.filmstories.co.uk there's loads of news and features and bits and bobs we put up on there to keep beating the film stories drum 
you can find us on facebook that's facebook.com slash film stories online and we're on youtube as well we've got some video exclusive film story stuff at youtube.com slash film stories most of all i want to say this though uh, as i come to effectively the end of the second season i'd imagine of uh, of doing this thank you so much for your support thank you for continuing to encourage me for continuing to bang the drum for this humble little podcast um the most important thing as always is you all stay safe and you all stay well i'll be back in a few weeks and i'll bring with me another bunch of film stories take care bye bye 